0: good morning it is such a pleasure to be back here with you all it feels like it's been a little while since we've, we've been here the last couple of months we've been away for a gospel meeting we've been away uh, for other uh, obligations to, to preach elsewhere we've been away for vacation uh, but we are we are very excited to, to be back and, and to be back for a, for a while uh, it is just it's it's, it's a wonderful uh Feeling to be back with our family here at, at Lake Street, and we have some visitors with us, and that's very exciting. We are thankful for you all for being here. Uh, we we hope that you will stick around for just a moment after services, give us an opportunity to get to know you better. Um, we you know that you're here visiting Georgia, and that that uh, means you're very much a welcome guest <laughs> for for us here. Um, you know, we have we have many things to be thankful for in this life. As Jim was was pointing out uh, before we took up the, the offering. There's so many things we have to be thankful for. Um, just this this weekend, uh, just yesterday, uh, I realized how very thankful I am that, that our house is not scattered all over Nicholasville as our gas line ruptured. Um, and so we, we, we tend to take things for granted. And as the house, because we had turned off the heat and the, the water heater, and as the house very quickly got cold... Um, I was very thankful that they were able to get that fixed quickly, and we were able to have warm air again. And so, that, there's just so many things that we take for granted, we don't think about a lot. And we're coming up on a a holiday, and and Jim was right in in his uh, description of that word and what that means. And we don't use that word the same way today as it was used in the past. Uh, but but there is an annual day that we have set aside uh, as As a people, not not just as Christians, but as people in general, there is an annual day that is set aside where we are thankful for something that we don't really maybe give as much attention to as we should. That day is Christmas, December 25th. It is a day in which millions around the world commemorate the birth of Jesus. In fact, it it is considered uh, by many to be the most holy of of holidays. Sundays following this holiday tend to have the highest uh, attendances, second only to maybe Easter. And, and this is just certainly, in the eyes of many, a very special day. What I want to consider this morning was that the question, did you know? Did you know that the New Testament Christians didn't celebrate the birth of Christ with a yearly observance? Nothing in the Bible indicates that any attention was given to Christ's birth in the form of a special day of remembrance. In fact, most Protestant churches uh, didn't start observing this idea of Christmas until the 19th century. Most churches of Christ today still don't have an, an observation of an annual commemoration towards the birth of Christ. Maybe, maybe you, like I, are curious. How did this holiday begin? Where did this come from? Is this something that we should be celebrating as a church? Is this something we should be celebrating as individuals? I want to spend some time looking at that this morning and considering the origins of Christmas. This, this sermon is one of those sermons that requires a special type of thinking. So oftentimes in our, our fast-track uh, life that we live, we like to, to think about things very little. Something pops in our mind and we want to get a response real quick and, and keep on moving. There's just so much that we pack into our lives today. But this is one of those times where we really need to slow down. We really need to think about what we're going to talk about this morning and, and not make any snap judgments until we have considered the whole matter. So in doing that, I want to start at the beginning. No, not in, in Genesis. I want to start in John. In John chapter 1. The Gospel of John uh, details for us a little bit about the birth of Christ. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. If we skip down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace grace and of truth. In John, we are told that Jesus has been around for a long time. In fact, He was around before the creation of everything. He was here. And one thing that we need to remember as we read these accounts in the Gospels, we need to remember that these were written by four very different men. And they were written to four different audiences. John wrote emphasizing The divinity of Jesus. That Jesus was God. And in his gospel, which was written to Greek-speaking Gentiles, John focused and wanted the reader to know that Jesus' birth started with the divine Son of God becoming flesh and choosing to dwell with man. And now this this is very different from what we read in Matthew. Matthew was a Jew addressing a Jewish audience. And so he focuses, as we were to read through the beginning of Matthew, on these great genealogies and all these names that that seem to not have a lot of meaning to us. A a man and his son and his grandsons. These genealogies place Jesus as an ancestor of David. That was extremely, extremely important to to the Jewish audience. It's important to us today, but it was certainly extremely important to the Jewish audience of that day. They would have recognized that importance as they were searching for a Messiah who would come through the lineage of David. Matthew's account is an account that details fulfillment of prophecy. And it details a renewed hope for a people who were searching and waiting for the arrival of Emmanuel, (laughs) of God with us. Then we come to Luke's account. Luke's account is primarily written again to Gentiles. And it's the longest of the four Gospels in respects to the birth of Christ. The shortest being Mark's account, which completely skips the birth of Christ and jumps right to a mature Jesus. But Luke differs from Matthew and John by focusing on people who have traditionally been marginalized in history. The Gospel of Luke focuses on on women who a lot of times weren't given a lot of attention in that day. On children, on the sick and the poor. Luke's account doesn't focus hardly at all on the role of Joseph, but rather on Mary. He neglects the wise men for mention of these lowly shepherds. In fact, if we want to turn over to Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, and read me verses 8 through 18. says here, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is the Christ. Excuse me, who is Christ? The Lord. This will be a sign for you: you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there appeared with the angels." With the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. Luke accounts in, in in his record of the birth. He accounts the very beautiful act of God in Jesus. Being born amongst a poor and weak people. Bringing peace and good to all. In so many of these accounts we learn so very much About the birth of Christ. But there's one thing that's missing. That one thing that's missing is a timeline. For some reason, God and the Holy Spirit felt it not necessary for us to know this timeline. The most we are told is found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor. Of Syria. So what we are told in Luke chapter two is that this was something that happened in the time of Caesar Augustus. Most uh, most scholars understand and know that he would rule between the years sixty three BC and nineteen AD. So we know that Jesus' birth happened in this time, and as as Queerness was governor of Syria. So that leads most scholars to believe that the time uh, and the date of Jesus' birth must have fallen somewhere between the year 6 and 4 B.C. In fact, it wasn't until the year 225 A.D. that a man by the name of Sextus Julius Africanus first popularized the idea that Jesus was born on December 25th. He did this by taking an assumption that Jesus died on March 25th. And it was Jewish popular belief that a prophet died the same day that they were conceived. And so therefore, if you take March 25th and fast forward nine months, you come up with the date, December 25th. And so this, was, this is where this idea first originated in the year 225 AD, but it came with arguments. As others claim, no, the date was in actuality January 6th. And then others, no, no, it was January 7th. The point of all this is that, is that there is a truth here. No one really knows the day No one really knows the month. No one even really knows the year when Christ was born. But if this is the case, then how did we end up with an annual observance of his birth on December 25th? To understand that. We need to to look back and observe the history of the Christmas celebration. And doing that, we'll start present day and work our way backwards. In the year 1870, Christmas was first declared a U.S. federal holiday. If we rewind back from that, the next time we're really going to find some some information regarding Christmas and and real things starting to change, is going to be in the 1600s. Christmas is causing a huge uproar amongst Puritan rulers who in 1647 banned Christmas altogether. We don't want a part of that. We're we're taking it out of uh, of circulation, if you will. A few years later, in 1660, they're forced to reinstate it. But but it still comes with a great deal of disapproval. There are so many who sought to outlaw the celebration entirely all the way up into the year 1681. If we go back even farther from that, we'll find that the first time Christmas is ever actually mentioned and recorded on a calendar, this is in the year 354 A.D. it 354 A.D., this is the first time that we ever have in history that this this day is recorded and and written down and marked on a calendar. But before that, before 354 A.D., by about 100 years, we find the first times that it's really being discussed as having a day set aside for for the birth of Christ. In the year 245 A.D., there are talks going on and, and there are people who are denouncing it, saying this is not something we should be doing. So why does the idea of Christmas carry such controversy with it? That's really what when, when I when I look at all these things, and say, Well, why on earth does this have so much controversy? We're talking about remembering the birth of our Savior. What could possibly what could possibly cause all this? Why why is this such a big deal, especially amongst those who called themselves Christians? Well, to understand why it was a big deal to them, and understand why it carries so much controversy, we need to go back a little bit farther to the year 217 BC. That's right, over 200 years before Christ even comes on the picture. And we see an image of people feasting and singing in the streets and giving gifts to one another. And we might be very tempted to think that sounds very similar to our topic of Christmas. But the truth is, this is far from a cheerful celebration of the birth of our Savior. In 217 BC, we have what is called Saturnalia. This was a Roman holiday. And the fact was the Romans were in very big trouble at this time because a man by the name of Hannibal of Carthage has crossed over the Alps riding on elephants. For for what that means, a man on elephants is coming down from the north and, and the Romans are scared. They're in trouble. He has made it to the city walls. He has besieged them and encamped around the city and morale starts to drop. And that's not good for Rome. They need to boost everyone up. And so the leaders decide, we need to have a festival. We need to do something. And so the first Saturnalia was held, and it was immensely successful. It boosted everybody up, and they liked it so much, they said, we're going to do this again. We want to do this every year. And it grew, and it grew into a week-long celebration, sometimes stretching all the way from December 17th to the December 25th. But the festivities we're not what we would, con- would typically consider festive today. The celebration was one that marked the rebirth of Roman gods. And, and, and it's, it's pretty graphic, so we'll just say that they were saved from the belly of their father Saturn by their younger brother Zeus, who goes on to become a great Roman god in their myth- myth- uh, mythology. And that's where we get the name Saturnalia from. This also corresponds at this time with something that was going on called the winter solstice. It's at this point that the sun is is starting to be out longer. So we have longer days. And they viewed this as a rebirth of the sun. In fact, this would stretch around to around the time of October when the sun would again start to to, uh, get, the the days would get shorter starting in October. And, And they viewed that as the death of the sun. So here is the rebirth and a celebration celebrating that. During this time, the different communities in Rome would pick one person from the town that they would they would choose to serve as the lord of misrule. And they would take this person and they would force them to indulge in food and in drink and and fill them until by the end of the week they would they would sacrifice this person. They would be brutally murdered. And this represented Saturn in the rescuing of the Roman deities. During this time, I'll keep my thing caught up here, I apologize. During this time, there, there was true lawlessness going on. There literally was no law. The courts closed for this week in Rome. The law that was there dictated that no one could be punished for any damages that were done to property or even to human life. Things such as public nudity, public drunkenness, and even sexual crimes were, were the norm. They were committed regularly. And so we ask ourselves, how could this be the origin of of what we now celebrate as Christmas. Well, again, we need to jump back to the 4th century again. Jump back to around 225, 245 A.D. Because these disputes over whether or not there should be a day to remember the birth of Christ have inevitably led to another discussion. Christian leaders of that they were attempting to, to bring pagans to Christ, to bring those who were outside of Christ and, and were following other religions and worshiping other deities... They wanted to bring them to the one true God and to the true understanding of of our Lord. And they had told them Christianity won't interfere with the celebrations of these days, which these people had grown rather fond of. And at this point, some of the more brutal and nasty parts of Saturnalia seemed to have disappeared, or at least they were diminished. They They weren't as focused upon. There was still a problem in this. They were celebrating uh, and paying homage to, to these Roman gods. And so how could they allow a celebration such as this, which took place near the end of December? Oh yeah, there's a guy that's been talking to us about how that's the birth of Christ. We could simply replace their celebration of the rebirth of Roman gods with the celebration of the birth of Christ. This is called syncretism. And this is what happened in the, in the early uh, 4th the 5th century. Uh, there was a blending of different beliefs while combining practices from various schools of thought. And the idea was, if they couldn't convince people to leave their beliefs and practices, then they would appropriate them to fit with their own beliefs. I want us to see two things about all this. And again, now all this might sound like like a very scary thing, and and, and just really, what are you talking about here, Kyle? Well, again, we need to be very slow in our thinking. Because I want us to notice two things. One is, We don't have any idea when Christ was born. It wasn't recorded for us. It wasn't something that was deemed necessary. We do know when the celebration of Christmas began. So that should lead us to ask a question, a question that I want to look at today, and that is, should we celebrate Christmas today? That question is very difficult and complex to answer. So we need to break it down into two much more simpler questions. The first one being, should Christmas be a work of the church? To understand that, let's look over to the book of Mark. Jesus warned about something in the book of Mark. He was warning about traditions of men. In Mark chapter 7, read with me verses 1 through 13. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him. And when they had come from Jerusalem, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, "These people honor, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the, precept, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Jesus was warning here of the danger of following human traditions. He rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for their use of traditions. They made traditions that were necessary for all to serve. We notice that in verse 7. They were teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. They were taking things that they had learned as tradition and saying, You have to follow what we are saying. And in keeping those traditions, they had laid aside commandments of God. They had taken things that God had said were important and made them of no value. And so we can understand from Jesus' words that traditions of men are wrong when they become matters of doctrine, when they become something that we force people to to, to practice and we bind upon them. And traditions of men are wrong when they replace the commands that God has given by keeping the tradition. Feast days or, or even holidays are like these traditions. In certain situations, they can be matters of expediencies, but they can also become stumbling blocks to others. As we go on, we need to also consider that Paul gave warnings regarding these feast days. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. 11. It says, However, at that time when when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God... How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I want us to note something here. That what Paul was was saying was not that their, their practices were wrong per se, but he was concerned. He was fearful Because in the context of their their practices, he was concerned as to why they were following them. Why were they keeping these these weak and worthless elemental things? If they believed that it was important or necessary to be saved, then Paul's labor among them was in danger of being worthless, of being in vain. In chapter 5, verse 4, he goes on to talk about seeking justification through the law. Seeking justification through religious feasts and days can actually call one, cause one to fall from grace and become estranged from God. Read verse chapter 5 verse 4. It says, You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. In fact, over in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 He goes on to say, Therefore, this is to the the churches of Colossae, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul, at this point, was admonishing the Colossians not to let anyone judge them, not to let anyone condemn them. Some were seeking, like we read in Acts chapter 15, Some were seeking to bind upon the Gentiles things that were in regard to the old law, to the law of Moses. In Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And in verse 5 says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Again, we have this idea of binding things that, that, that were not bound upon the early church. And Paul is giving warning regarding these sorts of things, regarding the old law and regarding feasts and, and, and not to let people judge or condemn them because of their participation in those things. The Gentiles were told, don't let anyone judge you because salvation, salvation is in Christ. Salvation is not in keeping the religious festivals and days of the law. But that doesn't mean that Paul was opposed to these things. Certainly, he was not opposed uh, to observing certain feasts and days apart from the church. In 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 20. We read a little bit about Paul keeping some things that were going on that, that were part of, not, not part of the law of Christ, not part of the, the new covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. Say, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that, I, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Paul was talking about things that he had done. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1-3, through 3, We read about some of the things he has done. Acts chapter 16 details how Paul had Timothy to go and to be circumcised. In Acts chapter 18, we read about a vow that he took. In fact, in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 21, we read about a feast that he participated in. Acts 18, starting in verse 18, says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Quilla. And in Centria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. And now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I'll return to you again, if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. We read of these things that were going on in in Paul's life where he was keeping things that were part of the old law. He was doing things that were part of the old law. Acts chapter 21. We read more about it. Look with me in verse 17 through 26. It says here, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and they followed and uh, the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it they began glorifying God and they said to him you see brother how many thousands there are among the Jews for those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law and they and they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs what then is to be done they will certainly hear <clears throat> they will certainly hear that you have come therefore do the do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their beds and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went to the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. What are they talking about here? They're talking about what we've been reading in Numbers these last several, several weeks. What's going on in Numbers chapter 6 verses 13 through 20 talks about the, 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 the sacrifices and the purification that was made. This includes animal sacrifices, several different animal sacrifices. The hair that was cut off was a, it was a sacrifice. They would burn that and the, the priests would wave it. These were things that were part of the old law. And Paul was participating in them. He was not opposed to certain parts of these things, but he did so apart from the church. He did so individually where he drew the line. Excuse me, where he, made, where he was clear with his teaching. He was clear with his teaching was that these sort of things could not be bound upon others. Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. They could not be bound on other people and force them to do them. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, he made it very clear that they have nothing to do with our justification in Christ. That's where Paul drew the line. He drew the line in making practices like these matters of church doctrine in which people would be compelled to participate in them. So let's make some application then, uh, knowing those two things in regards to Christmas. The Bible is silent regarding any observation of Christ's birth. God and Jesus evidently did not deem it necessary for the church. And so any observance of it is based solely upon human tradition, not God's Word. And as we read in Mark chapter 7... Human tradition is something we need to be very careful with. Christmas cannot become a matter of doctrine. It cannot become a matter of something that is bound upon others. And so an annual observance by the church would be unwise, if not altogether wrong. It intertwines human traditions with God's commands for His church. It forces people to follow and observe something that is a human tradition, but all that being said, it brings us about to the second part of that question. What about individuals? If we're talking about the church, and we can see that this is something that is a tradition of, men, of man and the danger that it could pose to, in, to bringing it into the church. What about individuals? Can individuals celebrate Christmas today? And in looking at that question, I would like us to turn over to Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> Romans chapter 14, and read with me. Verses 1 through 19. It says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each, of, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food for him for whom Christ died. And therefore do not let what is for a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. In Romans 14, Paul is talking about the relationship that we have with one another on an individual basis. And on that individual basis, if one person wishes to esteem one day above another, if one person wishes to raise one day as more important than another, then that is something that is between him and the Lord, as verses 5-6 through tell us. We must be careful not to condemn those who differ from us. If we, are, if we look at everything that we know about, about Christmas, if we look at what the Bible says about the observance of, of the birth of Christ, and we say that is something that I am not comfortable doing, we cannot condemn someone else who is. That is something that they do and is between them and God, and it is something that they do to give thanks to God. But at the same time, as if it is something that I do and I say it is important to me, I cannot hold in contempt my brother who disagrees with me. We must be sensitive to the convictions of others. As we've read about in there, it is because we are striving to make for peace. And we are striving to build up one another. And we're going to talk more about that this afternoon as we have have been discussing these these graces, these eight graces that make up the Christian life and grow our knowledge of Jesus. We're getting to that, that grace of brotherly kindness. And that certainly comes into play as we think of this, of this day and, and what it means to some and what it means to others. If I know that my brother is offended, if I know that my, my brother or sister does not agree with the, with, with the decision to celebrate Christmas in that manner, I'm going to do my best not to hold them in contempt and not to put a stumbling block in their way. But Likewise, if I do know my brother and sister feels that way and feels that they should celebrate that, I'm not going to pass judgment on them as well. I'm going to to view them still as my brother in Christ who who just wishes, wishes to give thanks to God in that way. But then that brings us back to these pagan elements that we talked about that are intertwined in the Christmas holiday. What do we do with those? Because so much of the Christmas holiday comes from pagan elements, from the giving of gifts, which was certainly a part of, of this Roman festival, to the decorating of Christmas trees and, and the putting up of wreaths. All these things come from a variety of other religions, from Wiccans to, to the Vikings. The idea of a Yule log comes from the Norse uh, myth, the mythology and, and, and of the idea of Yule. And, and so what do we do with all these pagan traditions? These pagan elements. And to that I say maybe that is best left Again, to an individual basis. In my understanding, we are free, as as Paul pointed out, we are free in Christ to change things that may have had religious practices at one time for a personal use and expediency. We look at the idea of circumcision. At one time, that was a religious practice of the Jew. Paul, likewise, encouraged Timothy to be circumcised, not to practice the religion of the Jews but having changed that to an expediency that would help in that day in in pressing on the words and the the, the message of Christ. And similarly in this day, circumcision is used as a hygienic purpose. The exchanging of gifts among friends and family is done as something that we choose to spend time with one another and show our love for one another. In conclusion, what I'm trying to point to that is that my view of Christmas is very similar to how I view Thanksgiving. There is no indication in the Scripture of an annual observance to show show thanks to God. And as Christians, I would hope that we would show thanks to God. And I would hope that we would celebrate the birth of Christ every day. That would be something that is intertwined in our being. But as Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, we need to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. And in doing so, That means the Lord's church should refrain from adding human traditions to its work and to its worship. All that being said, I am personally thankful. I am thankful that for at least one day out of the year, a majority of this world has on its mind the birth of Christ. And and when we we meet people in the world, I have not preached this sermon so that you have fodder to throw at them and say, do you know where that came from? That is not the purpose of this sermon. I believe that we should be informed as to what we are, what we do. But when we run into someone who says, I am I am convinced that December 25th was the birth of Christ, I hope that what we would do is take an advantage of that opportunity to not start up a conversation about whether or not the Bible says He was born on that day or whether or not history proves He was born on that day. To, I'll start up a conversation that that goes on to elaborate on the things that he did after his birth and the importance, the importance of that birth in our lives. We're going to talk about that in an upcoming sermon. We're going to take a very close look at just how amazing that event was in human history when the Son of God lowered himself down and became man and chose to live and to die for us the significance that that has, and the impact that that has on our lives today. We're going to look at that. But for now, I want to ask you, does that have an impact on you? Does it mean anything to you? Unless you have submitted yourself to Christ as both Lord and and supreme authority in your lives, then the answer to those questions is no. It really doesn't have a lot of bearance upon you. Have you been born again of water and the Spirit as we read about in John chapter 5? If it is your desire to do that, if it is your desire to enter into that wonderful kingdom of God and the whole purpose behind Christ coming to this world to make it possible for you, my question this morning is what's stopping you? What's standing in your way? if you have a need to respond to the invitation that God offers through His Son, Christ, I encourage you this morning. will want you please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.